If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. King Charles's coronation weekend is upon us. But with so much pressure to get time-honoured traditions right, down the centuries, coronations haven't always gone quite to plan. So what separates a crowning success from a royal fiasco? Well, speaking to Emily Briffitt, Dr Tracy Borman offers up her top tips for pulling off the ancient and majestic ceremony without a hitch. From rocking the right regalia and crowning the correct king to staying in tune with the times. Hi Tracy, thank you so much for joining me on this coronation special. Hi Emily, it's such a great pleasure to be talking all things regal. Now, the British monarchy is known for its pomp and pageantry and a coronation is a big way of showing this off. But it's also a really ancient tradition with history stretching back over a thousand years. So why have coronations been so important throughout this lengthy past? Well, you're absolutely right. And it doesn't get much bigger than a coronation when it comes to royal history. We do love our pomp and pageantry when it comes to the British monarchy. It's really at the heart of what the monarchy is all about. And the coronation really is the most ancient of all the ceremonies. So The ceremony that we will see on the 6th of May actually has its roots in Anglo-Saxon times, which I always find just astonishing in that there's such a degree of continuity from the first uh, coronation that we know in detail about in 973 
of the King Edgar then uh, at Bath Abbey. So many similarities in in the form of, of wording, the different parts of the ceremony, even some of the music. It's just mind-blowing how much has stayed the same. So at the broadest scope, what makes a good coronation? So everybody likes a good show, don't they really? So I think you've got to have the bling. You've got to have the glamour. Of course, you've got the jewels. So that's plenty of bling there with the crown jewels. And uh, the set that are in use today are those that were commissioned by King Charles II uh, when the monarchy was restored in 1660. The others have been melted down by those naughty parliamentarians. But so, of course, it has to look spectacular. But I do think, and I'm not just saying this as a historian, it needs to be rooted in history. And, And that is very, very important because... Um, A new monarch has to give the impression of business as usual. You know, they've got their right to be on the throne. They come from a long line of kings and queens. And so nothing new here to see, if you like. Uh, And so that's why that sense of tradition and ceremony that we see repeated over the centuries is so crucial. I think if we are going to dive into what really makes a successful coronation... The best place to start would be with our most recent past. Elizabeth II's coronation is renowned as the first in British history to be televised. And clearly, a lot of forward planning actually went into this. Would you say that's fair? Absolutely. So much planning went into Elizabeth II's coronation, which has been described by one authority as the most impressive coronation ever staged, which is just mind-blowing. There were more than 90 different plans drawn up for that wet June day in 1953, all different iterations, what happens if that's the case, uh, how do we account for this. I love the fact that no detail was overlooked, even down to the, the staff of the Royal Muse strapping a hot water bottle under the Queen's seat in the gold coach because it was a very, very cold day. And the fact that the Archbishop of Canterbury had uh, a flask of brandy and some sausage rolls for halfway through the ceremony because it was a long ceremony. So nothing was left to chance. I mean, they really went all out to make sure she was really looked after. They absolutely did. And of course, she was flanked by this entourage of beautifully dressed ladies in waiting. And I love, for me, events like this, I love the human details. When you think actually, you know, they are human beings after all. And you read accounts of one of the poor ladies in waiting almost fainting because they've been up since four in the morning and they probably haven't had breakfast. And it's a very, very long day. And of course, the eyes of the world were on them, not just the eyes of the Abbey. And so enormous pressure. Little wonder they started to feel a bit lightheaded. Another famous queen who really stole the limelight is Victoria. But I think she really took a rather thriftier look on the coronation. She did. And and that was deliberate. I think Victoria had a real instinct for PR, if you like. And she was in tune with popular opinion. She knew that she came to the throne after a period when the monarchy had really fallen into 
some disrepair, should we say, with her so-called wicked uncles, her immediate predecessor, William IV, but to a much greater extent, her other uncle, George IV, who was a scandalous king and he was a spendthrift. He lavished millions and millions of pounds on everything. And of course, his coronation was the most expensive ever. And people were starting to really resent the cost of the crown, the cost of monarchy. And so Victoria very deliberately did things the complete opposite. Her coronation uh, was so pared back that it was actually nicknamed the penny crowning. So she was very much in tune with the times, but perhaps went a little bit too far. People were complaining that there wasn't enough of the pomp and pageantry and the glitz and the glamour that they'd come to expect. So how did that compare to George IV then, if he's splashing the cash? He is certainly splashing the cash. So he spent an eye-watering £243,000, which is equivalent to about £14 million today. I mean, even by his standards, that, that was impressive spending. And it was said that he came into the Abbey like some glorious bird of the East, you know, bedecked in feathers and jewels, and he wanted all eyes on him. And they were, but they weren't necessarily impressed, I have to say. But I think George IV's coronation also probably teaches us a bit of a lesson about how to make sure your loved ones, or in perhaps in this case, your ex-loved ones, how to make sure they're involved. After all, even with spending this eye-watering amount of money, he was actually upstaged, wasn't he? He was upstaged. And you're absolutely right. You've got to be very careful with that guest list and make no major omissions from it, particularly your own wife. And that's exactly what George did. Uh, Now, admittedly, He was estranged from Caroline of Brunswick. Uh, It had been a disastrous marriage. They'd managed to stay together just long enough to conceive a child, but that was it. Then they lived separate lives. By the time he was crowned, he really never wanted to see Caroline again. But in true fashion, she turned up anyway, uninvited at Westminster Abbey. And she suffered the humiliation of having the doors slammed in her face because George, her husband, had carefully instructed the staff at the Abbey. But of course, that reflected rather badly on the king. It didn't look good that he'd shut his own wife out of his coronation. I mean, what a scandal there. Such a scandal. We talk about royal scandals today. There's never any greater scandal, I think, uh, than in the past, and particularly with George IV. He's at the root of so many of them. But am I right in thinking that some monarchs did share the limelight with their spouses? Well, they did. And one monarch who you might not expect to share the limelight is Henry VIII. Of course, larger than life, very stridently self-confident, loves to be the centre of attention. But he's one of the best examples of a joint coronation with his first wife, uh, Catherine of Aragon. He didn't do it for all six wives, but for, for his first wife at least, they had this joint coronation and it really was a glorious occasion. It felt like the beginning of a brave new world because 
Henry's father, Henry VII, had been deeply unpopular by the time of his death. It was quite a miserable time. People were being taxed a lot. Uh, They didn't like Henry's officials. And so Henry VIII comes to the throne as a strapping 17-year-old, very good-looking, very popular. And so was his new wife, Catherine of Aragon. And they were like the ultimate power couple. And they used their coronation as an expression of that. So that's a really good example of a a very successful joint coronation. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So I think this is the thing. It's He's famously known for having six wives, and yet he's really giving her this magnificent crowning. I know, Why? I know, exactly. <laughs> um, it it's, it's slightly flies in the face of, of what we think about uh, Henry VIII, but he was absolutely devoted to Catherine of Aragon, and it's easy to forget that because we know what happened next um, with the other five. But I would say it was actually his happiest marriage. She was uh, the best match for him of all six, and he wanted to celebrate that fact. And also, it was a great union for England with the might of Spain. So that was something to be celebrated as well. And so he started in the best possible way by sharing the limelight with his wife, who, of course, was going to be his only wife, or so people thought. But Henry's second wife, Anne Boleyn, didn't quite receive the same welcome reception as maybe her predecessor, did she? She really didn't. And this is when it goes to show, no matter how much you spend, it doesn't necessarily guarantee popular approval. And I'm afraid it didn't for Anne Boleyn. And she had a lot to prove. She came to the throne as Henry's consort with most of the country thinking she had no right to be there. They still loved Catherine of Aragon. They called her the true queen. Anne was the concubine. She was the great whore. They hated Anne Boleyn. And no amount of money was going to make them think differently. And so 
Anne actually went to extreme measures to try to prove she was the rightful queen over Catherine, even down to uh, seizing Catherine's uh, royal barge and and ripping off uh, Catherine's arms. Well, she instructed one of her, her men to do this and replace Catherine's arms with her own. Well, that went down like a lead balloon. The people of London were up in arms about this. They were furious on Catherine's behalf and they expressed their indignation and indeed their scorn for the new queen. When along the processional route, Henry and Anne's initials, H and A, they were intertwined, but the crowds turned that into a joke and sort of said, ha ha, as uh, the new queen passed. So it was as the ever reliable imperial ambassador Eustace Chapuis described uh, a cold and disagreeable affair. How common was it for monarchs to be crowned alongside their spouses? Well, it actually wasn't that common. There are a a handful of uh, good examples uh, through history. And of course, Charles III has chosen just that uh, to to crown his consort Camilla at the same uh, ceremony. But as a general rule, you find that the sovereign tends to take the limelight, and there there isn't a joint coronation. So I would say in the long history of the monarchy, they're relatively rare. Okay, now this is a slightly different point here. From wearing the crown to lifting what I imagine must be incredibly heavy robes, I think one potential problem new monarchs must have to face are wardrobe malfunctions. Has the history of the monarchy seen any particular dress disasters? Oh, I'm afraid there have been quite a few. One of my favourite has to be George II, because the Georgians so often get overlooked. They're, they're, you know, a little bit in between the Tudors and Victorians. People sort of skip over the Georgians, but they really shouldn't because they offer up some of the best moments, I think. And actually sheer comedy value comes uh, in here because George II, It was unseasonably hot when he was crowned. And um, even though it was an autumn day and he had these heavy velvet robes uh, trimmed with ermine. So, of course, extra heat. And he had this velvet cap. So he was already hot, but his velvet cap was clearly too large and it kept slipping down uh, over his eyes so he couldn't see where he was going as he processed to the Abbey. And by the time he finally reached Westminster, he was in such a fury that he was also red from kind of temper and rage as well as from the heat. And really, I'm afraid poor old George, he became a bit of a laughing stock. Now, am I right in thinking that actually one monarch lost the crown? I know, I know. One monarch lost it all together. And that was King Richard II, the ill-fated medieval king. Now, according to contemporary accounts, after he'd been crowned, when Richard was processing out of the abbey, a gust of wind carried the crown from his head. So, of course, you can imagine in this age where people believed in evil signs and bad omens. This was taken as pretty much as bad as it could get. And funnily enough, that's how it turned out when he was 
ousted from the throne by Bolingbroke, who became Henry IV. And so Richard did ultimately lose his crown. Were there perhaps any other mishaps or even perhaps positive moments that contemporary society thought foreshadowed a monarch's reign like this, like Richard II's bad omens? Well, there was another one which was taken to be quite a bad omen at the time. Um, And that was the crowning of Henry V when it actually snowed uh, on his coronation day. And that was seen to be an evil portent as well. But of course, Henry V turned out to be really rather good as king. I think he had the makings of being probably one of our greatest kings, had he not died before his time. He went on, of course, to win this glorious victory at Agincourt uh, in 1415, but then died after contracting dysentery on, on campaign. And then it all went horribly wrong. So maybe the snow and that being seen as a bad sign, it was ultimately right in that Henry's reign ended too soon, but he was a very successful king in the meantime. Now, clearly, appearances are absolutely vital to the monarchy, and especially in this prestigious ceremony. And one king who obviously really appreciated that was George VI. Why was it so important for George to stay in tune with the times? It really was for George VI, because, uh, so this is the late Queen's father. He did not want to be king. It's important to say that from the outset. Uh, He was only king because his brother, Edward VIII, abdicated in 1936. And so the throne had to pass to his younger brother, Bertie, who took the regnal name George VI. And that was significant in itself. Uh, Rather than being King Albert, he was King George. And that was to emphasise the continuity to his father's reign, George V. Let's just skip over Edward VIII as if that didn't happen. And uh, echoes of George V here when his son George VI uh, was crowned. And George VI was very much aware that popular opinion of the monarchy was rather negative at this time. And so he was determined to do his duty, but he would rather have been anywhere than uh, at the coronation uh, in 1937. But he deliberately kept the same day that had been appointed for the coronation of his brother Edward VIII, who never actually got around to being crowned because he abdicated. So that was the 12th of May, 1937. And again, it was just emphasising nothing to see here. It's business as usual. The monarchy is carrying on as if nothing has happened. Another king who appreciated the symbolic value of a coronation was William I. So going right the way back, unfortunately for him, unlike George, it probably didn't quite go to plan. Poor old William. Well, actually, no, it's it's impossible to feel sorry for William the Conqueror. He was just too brutal. Well, he, he did everything right in terms of choosing the day for his coronation, Christmas Day. Of all the symbolism, I mean, what better day than that? Celebrating Christ's birth and the birth, not just of a new monarch, but of a new dynasty. The Norman dynasty is here to stay. Christmas Day, 1066. And it was all going so well until 
inside the Abbey as tradition dictated uh, when the congregation were invited to show their approval of the new king. Uh, and huge cheers went up around the Abbey and the guards waiting outside the Abbey, William's guards, mistook this for a riot. So they started torching houses all around London and they went on the rampage. And then the congregation got wind of this and they all fled in terror along with the presiding clergyman. So they kind of hastily put the crown on William's head and then the whole thing just descended into chaos. And that sounds completely manic. Totally manic and not exactly according to plan. And William himself, this is this fearsome warrior king. He has been a warrior since he was a child and yet it really rattled him. One chronicler said that uh, the new Norman king was left trembling from head to foot. Oh dear, clearly quite panicked then. Definitely. So... Another potential problem that we probably don't expect of a coronation is crowning the wrong king. Yes, always a bad idea to do that, isn't it? Don't crown the wrong king. But it has happened. Believe it or not, it has happened. Um, And on the 24th of May, 1487, King Edward VI was crowned. Now, your listeners will be thinking, hang on a minute, Edward VI was not crowned in 1487. It was 1547. Thank you very much. But no, this was in fact an imposter. Lambert Simnel, um, who was the first of the pretenders to challenge Henry VII's rule. Uh, And Simnel, uh, he was about 10 years old at the time of his coronation. And I should say the coronation only took place in Ireland, not in England. Christchurch Cathedral in Dublin. And he claimed to be Edward Plantagenet, Earl of Warwick, who was the son of Edward IV's brother, George, Duke of Clarence, who famously was drowned in that butt of wine, according to legend. But he'd been put up as not Lambert Simnel, but as Edward Plantagenet. And people were still very nostalgic about the Plantagenet dynasty. Edward IV had been very popular. Henry VII wasn't very popular. So this interloper did actually manage to generate an awful lot of support. And he was crowned. And he's he actually got support from within the royal family. In fact, the Queen's own mother, Elizabeth Woodville, was arrested on suspicion of involvement. So it was a very real threat. And what happened to him? Presumably he wasn't king then. No, he wasn't king. As I say, he was never crowned in England. Henry VII managed to vanquish him and his supporters. But I love this. Uh, I, I do think wily old Henry VII, rather than just have him executed, because then that would have still excited the sympathy of the people and it would have left a question mark over his legitimacy to be crowned king. What Henry did instead was to set Simnel to work in the royal kitchens. So he was just a kitchen boy, just to prove his true status. So we have some coronations where the wrong monarch is crowned. But then on the other hand... We also have potential monarchs or monarchs who thought they were the rightful ruler and they just simply weren't crowned. Was being crowned essential in establishing a monarch? 
Absolutely. And it's it was said that there's a quote that I'm going to say very inelegantly and, and just paraphrase, but basically no amount of oceans can wash away the crown from a monarch's head. So in other words, if you've been crowned, it's a lot harder to unseat that monarch. And I think that was why Richard III made such a point of having himself crowned very, very quickly after taking the throne. It's like, yep, here I am. I'm the king. I'm wearing the crown. There's no other rightful king, by the way. Uh, No nephews residing in the tower. It's just me. Uh, All the focus and the homage should be on me as King Richard III. And then again, as well as the wrong monarchs, as well as the uncrowned monarchs, there are also those that are so young that they probably don't even remember their own coronation. Who are these? I think we might have some ideas here. I think we have indeed. I've already mentioned Henry V dying before his time. He left his kingdom to a baby, his baby son, Henry VI. So he was certainly very young. But I think the cutest coronation in history has to be that of Mary, Queen of Scots. So she became queen when she was, you know, just a few days old. She was very, very young indeed. And she was crowned when she was still just nine months old in September 1543. So she had to be kind of enrobed in in all of the finery, even though she was this little baby. Um, and throughout the proceedings, you can see how the dignitaries and the officials sort of improvised. So one of them kind of had to hold Mary up because, you know, she could have just slumped off the chair and fallen and then probably done herself a bit of a mischief. And so they went through pretty much every required element of the ceremony with this little baby sitting there in enormous robes being held up by one of the officials. But then came a bit of a mishap uh, with the disrobing for the anointing. And as soon as these kind of warm robes in chilly Scotland were taken off, then poor Mary started to cry as any baby would. And so she had to be distracted by the Earl of Lennox, whose son, Henry, by the way, later became Mary's second husband. Not a great match there. The Earl of Lennox offered Mary the sceptre and she grasped it like a kind of rattle and that kept her quiet for the rest of the ceremony. So I think that's just such a cute story. It's an incredibly sweet one there. Just in this short amount of time, we've obviously covered such a scope of history from the Normans right up to the last century or so. But in your opinion, what would you say has been the most successful coronation? Oh, that is such a question. But I think, you know, I'm only pretending to be torn over my answer because it has to be Elizabeth I. And she so often is my top pick, but for good reason, let me say. And her coronation was just a masterpiece. And like all the best coronations, she left nothing to chance. Carefully prepared, she consulted her astrologer, Dr John Dee, about the most auspicious date for the coronation. 
He chose January 1559, so it was bitterly cold. But Elizabeth didn't care for that. If Dr. Diaz said it was the right day, that it must be. And she went to town with this coronation. And what I love about it is this is one of the clearest demonstrations we have of Elizabeth's loyalty to her late mother, Anne Boleyn, because she modelled her coronation on Anne's. She even used some of the same designers. She adopted the same classical theme. She even had Anne Boleyn on display, a life-size model of Anne Boleyn with Henry VIII, the first time Anne had really been seen or displayed in public since her execution. So that was a big statement to make. And Elizabeth made so many other statements. There were these little pageants or, or vignettes, little plays along the processional routes that sent out messages about this being a new beginning Gone are the bad old days of her half-sister Mary. We're no longer Catholic. We're Protestant. Uh, and, you know, of course, the main theme, though, is about Elizabeth's legitimacy. She knows that people think, or at least half of her subjects think, she's a heretic, she's illegitimate, she shouldn't be on the throne. So she goes to town with celebrating her family tree all the way along the processional route. That is very much the clear message. And it has gone down in history as this great triumph. And she did win people over, unlike her poor mother, who ended up ridiculed on her coronation day. Elizabeth had the opposite effect. And like so much else, uh, Elizabeth on her coronation day proved herself the mistress of public relations. But the coronations of the British monarchs haven't all been outstanding affairs. I think it would be fair to say there's been a fair share of tumultuous tales alongside the success stories. So of all the coronations in the last thousand years or so, what would you say have been some of the most memorable monarch moments? Memorable monarch moments. That is such a great question. Um, and I love the alliteration as well. I think we can't help but take pleasure in the things that go wrong as well as in the things that go right. It's just human nature. And so, you know, I, I mentioned Queen Victoria's was sort of slightly derided as the penny crowning, but she still put on a, a reasonable show. But during the proceedings, there were so many mishaps, presiding clerics forgetting their words. One bishop actually fell down the steps after putting the crown on Victoria's head. And it, it was a bit like carry on crowning. It was all a little bit farcical there. So I can't help thinking that's a memorable moment. But probably, I think, Perhaps because it, it sort of broke all sorts of records. I do think Elizabeth II's coronation is quite hard to beat in terms of being memorable because this, as you said at the beginning, was the first coronation in royal history to be televised. So finally, everybody was let in to Westminster Abbey, as well as the staggering 8,000 plus guests, which is four times as many as the capacity of Westminster Abbey, by the way. The eyes of the world were on Westminster Abbey and you have this young queen. She's the same age as the first Elizabeth when she becomes queen, just 25 years old. And people heralded it as a second Elizabethan age. And, you know, it was just this glorious moment in the history of the monarchy. But who knows? Uh, maybe that of Charles III 
will surpass it and we'll be seeing that as the most momentous in history. And that perfectly brings us on to my next question for you, which is what do you think we should perhaps expect from the upcoming coronation of Charles? So it was said by a very astute uh, commentator that an ideal monarch should be always changing, always the same. In other words, they should keep up with the times, but they should also uphold traditions. And I've already explained why those traditions are so important to the monarchy. So I think we'll get more than a nod to this in Charles III's coronation. We've heard about the innovations, uh, the anointing oil, for example, um, but there will also be a really strong core of tradition, I think. Uh, And we know certainly in terms of the crown jewels, that is going to be the case. And I, so I think we'll see the old and the new. I don't think the anointing oil will be the only innovation. I think there will be others, but hopefully it will hit just that right balance between tradition and innovation. Now, looking back on all of these historical coronations, As a historian, what advice would you give to Charles in preparation for his coronation on the 6th of May? Well, I would say preparation is key. That's probably something I don't even need to say because by now the monarchy is a well-oiled machine. These plans will have been drawn up a long time ago and refined uh, over the, the months and weeks leading up to the coronation. So, Preparation is key. But I would also say, you know, enjoy the day, enjoy the moment and look like you are. And I think that really does enhance the occasion. And it tends to be a bit of an ingredient for success. You can smile your way through pretty much anything, I think. And so if things do go wrong, I think if you have a smile on your face, then it goes a long way. I think that's absolutely perfect advice, both a combination of the historical and the human. Thank you so much for your time today, Tracy. I really appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you. That was Dr Tracy Borman. Tracy recently wrote a feature for BBC History magazine, including all her top tips and more. You can find that on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.